Koinonia. It's the familiar Greek word for fellowship. It's a powerful word. It describes our relationship with God. We have fellowship with him. But it also describes our relationship with each other. That is, other Christians, other believers, the unity of the redeemed. But what exactly does fellowship mean? Literally defined, it means a community of interest, communion with others, or an association of persons having similar interests and tests. That's a good definition. Of course, these days when you hear the word fellowship, especially within the church, we understand what we're talking about. A unique bond that we have with one another, regardless of superficial, external, ethnic, financial differences, because we have a unity in Jesus Christ. And that's what our fellowship is as Christians. We have together a commonality, a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Not merely knowledge of him, but true redemption and regeneration. And so we use this word loosely, but properly, when we refer to our church as a fellowship, the fellowship of the saints. I'm going to attend fellowship. Some churches, as you know, have the word fellowship in the name of the church. Fellowship Bible Church, for example. We also, generally speaking, use it as a verb to say that we fellowship with one another. I'm experiencing, I'm going to go fellowship with the brothers or the sisters in Christ. But for the believer, fellowship is not just about a comfort and having a circle of friends with whom we feel safe and enjoy a camaraderie. Fellowship can and should be extremely powerful. Fellowship, when practiced effectively and biblically, can literally change the world. And if our fellowship is in the Lord, surely there is more to it than just some people with the same God grouping together to hang out, coming together under the same roof to sing songs and hear a sermon. There's more to it. There's more power in it. There's more effectiveness in it. There's more potential in it. But how? How do we make fellowship effective and powerful the way God intended? Well, this morning, as we continue in our conclusion of 1 Corinthians, in Paul's goodbye in this letter, we see from his example, as well as the example of three of his close friends and co-workers, how to make fellowship effective. And to unpack this, I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 16, our passage for the morning is verses 15 through 18, which I'll read for you. Paul writes, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus or Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. And this morning, I'd like to give you six ingredients of effective fellowship. Six ingredients 
of effective fellowship. If you as a believer have ever shied away from fellowship, perhaps you are an introvert, perhaps you don't have a group of Christians that you really have committed to, perhaps you just prefer the company of non-Christians to Christians, then it may be that you have never truly experienced or pursued effective or biblical fellowship. But as a believer, if and when you do, you will find it contagious. You will find that on this side of heaven, there is no greater experience among other human beings than biblical fellowship. There simply is not much better in this life. And so six ingredients of effective fellowship. The the first ingredient I want to give you is the fellowship of salvation. The fellowship of salvation, and this is foundational. In the first part of verse 15, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, which he then picks up in verse 16. And the main part of this point is within that parenthesis. You know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia. Let's stop there. The first ingredient is basic to Christian fellowship. When we talk about fellowship, community that we all share, it is faith in Christ. It is not anything external. It's not anything that you have in common with anyone else. Same job, same ethnicity, same parents even. It is faith in Jesus Christ. Now again, the point comes from not the phrase, now I urge you, brethren, which we'll see in a couple points, which relates to the next verse. But it's in this parenthesis. The household of Stephanus was first mentioned in chapter 1. And here Paul says that this family was among the first to be saved in Achaia. Back in chapter 1, he mentions that he had baptized Stephanus within the context of being thankful that he hadn't baptized many people because that was where he was addressing the various factions. But back to our verse this morning, Achaia was a Roman province in southern Greece which contained the city of Corinth as well as Athens, and so clearly a very important area. Now, when we talk about a household, this would include not just his immediate family, but anyone that lived within his home or land, including non-family that would be servants and slaves. And we know that this family was among the first of a greater number of those who would be converted in Corinth, as well as the larger province of Achaia. And for our lesson this morning, all I really want to point out in this point is that they were saved. You see, as believers, although we can be encouraged by unbelievers, we can be edified by good news that we see on TV, we can even be filled with joy because of something an unbeliever does, but we do not have fellowship with unbelievers. And in fact, any of those examples that I just gave would be probably because you as a believer then attach a secular news item or an unbeliever's action to what you have in Jesus Christ. And you filter it through the lens of Scripture. And when it comes to a practical life, there are dozens, if not hundreds, or even thousands of points of commonality that you can find with others. The aspects of who you are, such as your ethnicity, your hometown, your favorite team, your hobby, your alma mater, whatever it may be. 
And because of this, I think we often relish and enjoy the relationships created through these connections more than we do the connections we find at church. Maybe those people, the unbelievers, are easier to talk to. We can open up with them. We can laugh with them. Perhaps you just have more in common with them on a social level. But even in those relationships, it is a wonderful reminder of God's grace in creation that we are all different. We have different likes and dislikes, preferences and favorites. But there is a greater bond that goes beyond the external and fleeting and into the pervasive and eternal. And that is found in Jesus Christ. And that alone, He alone, should drive you to seek your closest relationships with other Christians. If that is not the case, then it would be wise for you to ask yourself, why? Why do you prefer the company of unbelievers when the greatest bond that could ever exist is religion, but more to the point is true religion and the worship of the one true God. What is it that outweighs the significance of the cross in your relationships? Second Corinthians 6, 4 asks the question, Paul asks, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And as we have all experienced, to some degree, the holier you live, the more you will find that unbelievers are completely different than you because the holier you are, the more you disregard issues of preference and personality and dig into things of more profound significance, ultimately the things of Jesus Christ. Children, my children, often connect based on superficial issues. Sports, clothing, sense of humor... In the same way, it is the immature Christian who connects with unbelievers simply because of the superficial. We need to be careful that we don't tend toward deeper relationships with unbelievers because with them we can say and do things that are biblically improper to say and do. We can talk about movies that other Christians would shun. We could talk about and relish in our pursuit of riches that the Bible condemns. Things that we know that unbelievers, and rightly so, would rebuke, frown upon. On the flip side, this is not a call to bring worldly things into Christian fellowship as a source of fellowship. We don't take things of the world and say, this is why we're going to fellowship. This is what we fellowship over. Because that's not fellowship. Because our fellowship is in Christ. And if our relationships and friendships, even with Christians, are based upon things that are not of the Scriptures, that are not rooted in Christ, then it is not true fellowship. So who do you prefer and why? There's an old nursery rhyme. Birds of a feather flock together, but so do pigs and swine. Let me put it simply. If you as a Christian have a greater comfort and friendship with an unbeliever than another Christian, the problem is not with the Christian or the church. 
the problem is with you and your relationship with God. Because people do that, right? Well, I know, but you know, the church, they, well, the Christians at Grace, they tend to. And so all of a sudden, the problem seems to be us, but the problem is not us. The problem is your view of Scripture and your relationship with Christ, what you prioritize in this life, what you enjoy. But, thankfully, it's a problem that can be fixed. It's a problem that can be fixed by focusing on what matters to God and what should matter to you. The thing that defines who you are, you are saved. Now, when it comes to fellowship, there's a commonality with all who are saved, but there will not be a relationship with most who are saved. In other words, you are not right now friends or even distant acquaintances with every single Christian in the world. Just a fraction of a fraction of them. And so we must make those relationships with Christians in our immediate vicinity count. And that leads me to our next ingredient of effective fellowship, the fellowship of service. He continues in verse 15 in this parenthesis, speaking of the household of Stephanus, and they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Not only are the members of this household believers, but they have committed themselves to ministry. Devoted is a word that means to appoint or assign to a task an office or position. So the phrase that Paul uses to describe them devoted themselves means they set themselves apart to serve other believers. They assign themselves to ministry. And that word ministry is the word service. It's the Greek word where we get the English word deacon, originally used of someone who waited on tables and other sorts of household servants. The word later was used of any service to or for the church, which is why it's often translated in English as minister or ministry. And from Scripture, we know that this is not merely the serving of others, but it is service practiced by one's own choice without consideration of personal benefit. You understand that from biblical love, biblical service. There's no consideration of personal benefit. In other words, we're not forced to serve. We choose to serve. And in that choice, we have the sole aim, the sole aim of helping others and not ourselves. It's not about gaining favor. It's not about personal reputation or any other selfish goal, even if that goal is not primary. And something else we know about this ministry is that includes all sorts of service. The word refers to a skeleton of which is found throughout the New Testament and can be fleshed out in a variety of ways in your own life, your own circle of relationships and gifting. To be clear, this is a word that is not limited to a particular church office or function. It's service for all believers. And the basic idea is that of a humble personal service rendered in a way that submits ultimately to the Father, and this is important, but also to the needs and the will of the individual you are serving. In other words, service is meeting needs. 
even needs that are not recognized, even needs that are not wanted, such as greater holiness and salvation. And what's interesting about the household of Stephanus is that the Greek grammar Paul uses uses shows us that this was entirely on their own initiative. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with the church or even leaders in the church appointing someone to a task or a position, but this was self-motivated, this was self-assigned, and there's something that every one of us can do in the church, in our lives, for other believers that falls within these lines, that we can say, no one's asked me to do this, but I'm going to go and do this and serve that other believer. You know this, I've said this before, the very idea of being a Christian without serving is foreign to the Scriptures. It defines who we are. The very definition of the title Christian involves service to God through the service of others. Fellowship is not bound up in being served. It's not saying, oh yeah, I enjoy good fellowship. They serve me. They minister to me. It is a mutual service to one another. And as for Stephanus and his people, there's most likely a service that goes beyond that of the typical Christian. There was probably some sort of ministry of the Word or at least some form of leadership within the church, which explains the next verse in which we find our next point, the fellowship of submission. The fellowship of submission. Verse 16, connecting to the beginning of verse 15, which says, I urge you, brethren then jump to 16, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. The call to mutual submission, but especially to leaders in the church, is fleshed out in what Paul is calling the Corinthians to do here. And what that is, is to be in subjection to such men. That is, people like Stephanus and his household, But he adds, along with everyone else who, quote, helps in the work and labors. This is a mutual submission, not just to leadership in the church, but all who serve within the church. That phrase, be in subjection, is to put oneself under someone else. It is the idea of submission. It involves listening to, obeying, but also respecting them. Heeding their counsel and advice as well as their rebuke and their admonition. This is how the church works. It's not two or three or four people driving the whole thing. There is a mutual submission to one another. You get this. You may be a leader at your work, a manager, but then you join another team, and even though the leader of the team has a lower position than you, according to the whatever the bosses say, you still follow that person as the team leader. I'm the pastor. But when I'm on the choir, I follow the choir director. You get it. To put oneself under someone else. And the people the Corinthians were to subject themselves to were not just this particular family. Because, of course, Paul says, everyone who helps in the work and labors, this would be anyone who works together with the church body, anyone who cooperates in mutual service. In other words, to put it very simply, we are to submit to and respect all godly people. 
Ephesians 5.21, be subject, same word, to one another in the fear of Christ. And there it is in that final phrase. The fear of Christ. Why should we subject ourselves to one another? Because those who are working and laboring are doing so for the Lord and are thus representing Him. And in the fear of the Lord, we submit ourselves to one another. Our tendency, because of our pride and our sin, however, is to fight for our own way. Our own rights, our own comfort, our own leadership, our own control. Nobody likes being told what to do. And then we make silly excuses to avoid going with the flow of the church and thereby hindering fellowship for all. Silly excuses. Oh, it's too far. Oh, I don't like that thing. Oh, I don't have a phone. Whatever it is. But if we truly love, we will submit to one another and especially those who are serving and say, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. But you know what? For the sake of fellowship and submitting to you because I know what you're trying to do is honor God by building us all up, I will do that. This would really solve most of the church's problems. If everyone was serving and we humbly follow those who are serving. And so we need to step up both in service as well as in submission to those who are. And the reality is that we are all sinners in need of grace. And quite often, that grace displayed by God is through other Christians. Which leads us to our next ingredient of effective fellowship. The fellowship of support. The fellowship of support. Verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. This is, again, Paul speaking to the Corinthians. What we know here is there's some sort of figurative hole in Paul's life which was filled by these three men. We aren't told exactly what was lacking nor how these three supplied the lack outside of their coming, their physical presence with Him. Although we know nothing from Scripture, nothing else rather about Fortunatus and Achaicus, other than what we read here, we do know that Stephanus is from Corinth. Some suggestions as to why they were such a comfort to Paul include the following. Simply that Paul misses the fellowship with the Corinthians and by having three representatives from the Corinthian church, he is now as comforted. It could be the lack of love that has been displayed by the Corinthians to Paul as indicated throughout this letter. And now it's comforting to have these three men who clearly have traveled a long way to encourage him and be with him. It's also possible that they brought the letter previous to this one that the Corinthians wrote with all those questions about the resurrection and about the factions and all those things. There was a letter Paul received so that he knew about all the issues that we've seen in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is his response to that letter. In fact, it's common for Paul in his letters to mention and commend the people who deliver letters for him to others. And so it may be that he's commending these three for bringing a letter all the way from Corinth to him And by bringing this letter, he is reconnecting through these three men with the Corinthian church. 
And perhaps that's what it is as well, just a, a comfort. And that could cover all the, th- the issues that we've talked about before. We just don't know. But you get it. I, I remember um, 14 years ago when my wife and I got married uh, just a few miles from here. And we were serving, or I was serving in Albania at the time. My wife was about to join me about four weeks after we got married. And there was an Albanian that was really close to us that I had known for years. And she married uh, an American man and was now living in Oregon. And she knew that we were getting married and, and several of our team members were going to attend the wedding. And so at eight and a half months pregnant, she said, I'm going to drive from Oregon to Half Moon Bay to attend your wedding because even though you're not Albanian and no one on your team is Albanian, I just need to see someone that's from Albania. Thankfully, she didn't do that. But you've experienced that, where even though you're away from a group and you miss the group, just a couple representatives says, man, it's so good to see someone from my home country or my hometown or my old church. But regardless of what it was, we know that there's a gap in Paul's life created by the distance from the fellowship in Corinth that has been filled by Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And he says they have, they have supplied, which means to fill up again. We get that idea with, I need to load up on supplies to fill up again what is needed. Years ago, there was an anthropologist who was asked, this anthropologist's name is Margaret Mead. She was asked by one of her students what she considered to be the first sign of civilization in a culture. Now we understand that civilization began with Adam and Eve because we were created in the image of God. But from a secular anthropologist's point of view, she was asked this question, And the student expected this formidable anthropologist to say something like, well, when we discovered fish hooks or clay pots or some sort of tool. But that's not what Mead said. She said, the first sign of civilization in a culture is a femur, thigh bone, largest bone in your body, that has been broken and then healed. You see, in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. You can't run from predators, you can't hunt for food, you can't go down to the lake to drink water. You die. You are simply food for other animals. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for it to heal on its own. It takes a while. A broken femur, however, that has healed is evidence that someone has taken the time to stay with the person who broke its leg, bound up the wound, probably carried the person to safety, and cared for the person through recovery which, as many of you know, can take weeks, if not months, for a broken femur. In other words, she said civilization begins when someone helps another person through difficulty. And again, we know that this kind of behavior started with the very first man and woman. At the very point of creation, civilization began, but the point is clear. Mead went on to say, we are at our best when we serve others. Serving one another, helping one another when they're hurt is simply a feature of humanity. 
that frankly, if you just look on the streets of San Mateo County these days, seems to be losing its steam. People rather laugh or post pictures or videos on Instagram rather than helping the hurt, which is sad. But innate in humanity is the desire to help those who are hurting. This should, of course, be all the more pursued for the ones who do so for the sake of Jesus Christ. And though redeemed, we are all still human. We go through life with ups and downs, needs and wants. And until glory, our lives will be filled with hills and valleys. And when we are in those valleys, when we are in those trials, when we've had a hard day at work, when someone is sick, whatever it may be, it is easy to turn to the inanimate when we're down. Buy a new gadget or something nice to make us feel better. Binge on unhealthy food, watch TV, whatever it may be. And when we do turn to the human, it's easy to turn to people who are concerned about our happiness, but not our souls. Professional or just friends. People who will help us forget our trials rather than rejoice in them and grow closer to the Lord through them. People who will help us cope with emotions, with unbiblical thinking or telling us that we are inherently good so that we do feel good and don't turn where we need to turn, which is the gospel. Or we can do what God wants so much that He created the church to turn to one another. We must support one another. We must serve one another for true biblical fellowship. The fifth ingredient of effective fellowship is the fellowship of strength. In verse 18, he says, speaking of these three men, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. And here we see the result of the support that was given to Paul by their presence and the provision of what was lacking. Paul is refreshed in a spiritual way, as are the Corinthians. To refresh means to give a break, to give rest or cause to rest, to put at ease. It could refer to ceasing from any sort of movement that tires someone physically or spiritually. We understand this principle. When you have a really intense day at work and you get to take a break or you get to clock out or you're undergoing some strenuous physical activity and then you stop and take a breather, get some water, that's the idea of refresh. The whole phrase Paul uses literally says to put the spirit at rest. They put my spirit at rest as well as yours, Corinthians. So something was going on in Paul's life that was eased by these men on a spiritual level. So notice, they, they also refreshed the Corinthian spirit. Now again, this could either be because of the three ministering to the Corinthians directly when they are there, or because of their willingness to travel and deliver their letter to the Apostle Paul, which means that their contact with Paul has been reestablished, and the situation, the bad situation in the church, is now known by the Apostle so that he could pray and help and provide counsel. And with all that was going on, with the infighting, the immorality, the lawsuits and the like, it was surely a welcome relief to know that Paul was now in contact and he was now involved. Ultimately, as believers, we get such rest from the Lord simply by belonging to Him, simply by trusting in His sovereignty, reminding ourselves of who God is. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 is that so, so comforting passage that we're familiar with where Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Same Greek word. Take my yoke upon you, he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We understand that in the context of when Jesus was on earth and what he is saying here, he is speaking to his immediate audience, saying that all are welcome to come and he will remove the burden that the Jews have put on them of trying to save themselves, the burden of spirituality and religion outside of Jesus Christ that puts you at the center focus. And it is in this that we ultimately find our comfort and strength in this life from God and his word. Secondarily, and not a distant second, right up there. In fact, part of finding our comfort from God is finding it from God's people, which means we are also to be people who provide that rest and strength for others. This can be as easy as a kind word, a prayer, a hand on a shoulder, reading or reciting a Bible verse. It When you think about it, it's pretty amazing that we can be providers of spiritual strength. Spiritual strength. It's easier to provide physical strength. To help carry someone, to help someone move, to pick things up, to give a mom a break by holding her baby for a little bit, those types of things. But spiritual strength, that's harder. In fact, that's impossible outside of Jesus Christ. And one would think it's all... It's impossible unless you are Jesus Christ, but God has given us the privilege to refresh others spiritually. It's not that we ourselves do the heavy lifting, but by a simple act of biblical love, we help others believers, other believers rather, tap into the strength that they already have in Jesus Christ. We cannot grow spiritually for someone else, but we can help them grow spiritually and provide that strength. See, think about the situation. Stephanus and his companions did not remove the false doctrine of the Corinthians or the sin in their midst, yet it was a refreshment to Paul and the church that they were there. They were still able to provide. They can't remove the sin from their brethren in the church of Corinth, but they can help, they can strengthen, they can refresh And in the same way, in order to be strengthened by others, we have to have the right perspective in knowing that it is not just about physical gifts and emotional platitudes. This is key to remember both when you are strengthening as well as when you are in need of strength. We need to be biblical with our fellowship, which means we need to be biblical with our encouragement. Church. We are not in the business of making people feel good. We are in the business of spiritual invigoration. And that takes work. That takes knowing your Bible. That takes time. That takes effort. That takes spiritual strength in your own life. I believe, and you've heard me talk about it before. Some of you probably think I'm talking about it too much. I think one of the greatest temptations of any man, Christian or not, is to be stingy with their money. 
to keep it all for themselves and their stuff. And I believe that as believers, we need to grow greatly in our financial generosity. However, that being said, when it comes to fellowship, if your heart is not in the right place, buying something for someone or spending money on someone can be one of the most selfish things you can do. Because rather than spend time, rather than risk your comfort serving someone, it is easy to get on your phone and just ship a gift, door dash a meal, buy a gift card. We appease our conscience by throwing money at people instead of taking the time to sacrifice more than just what's in our pocketbook, but our lives, our comfort to help others. To fill needs. These three men risked their lives coming to the Apostle Paul through this journey. You know this in the Bay Area, especially in San Mateo County. There are children who are parented this way. Their parents don't spend time with them. They don't show them affection. But boy, do they buy them a lot of stuff to make up for it. I don't have my dad, but I have the latest iPhone, the latest PlayStation, whatever it may be. And we know that's wrong. We know that's not good. Because that's not love. That's a transaction. Our fellowship must be rooted in love. It is not a transaction. As noble and sacrificial as it can be, and supporting others will often take finances, don't get me wrong, we must not limit our attempts at helping others just by buying stuff. You understand that when a Christian needs help moving, They do need that help. They need to be out of their apartment by a certain time. But they're asking us because they want us. They they enjoy us. They want the fellowship. They want the conversation. They want to know that other Christians are being served and are serving. You could go on TaskRabbit and say, hey, I'll hire a few guys to help you. But you get that it's not the same. still helpful, but it's not the same. Be careful that our fellowship is not just about stuff and money and practical things when we have the ability to strengthen spiritually. And so I need to ask you, and I ask myself, and frankly, as I evaluate my own life, the answer to this scares me as a pastor but also as a Christian. Are you refreshing, spiritually speaking, to be around? Or do you drain? Do you tear down? Are you always being negative? Are you always bringing up bad news? Are you also always criticizing, gossiping, assuming the worst or agreeing with those who do? Proverbs 25.25 says, Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. Do you bring good news or do you just highlight the bad? God often comforts us directly 
but he also often uses other Christians. True fellowship builds up because true fellowship is in Christ who desires for us to grow and flourish, not decline and shrivel. We're all part, we all have a part in that growth, not just in our own spiritual growth, but in the lives of others. The fellowship of strength. Let me give you a sixth and final ingredient of effective fellowship. We've seen the fellowship of salvation, service, submission, support, and strength. And now the fellowship of sight. The fellowship of sight. Look at the end of verse 18. Therefore, because they are saved, because they have ministered, because they have refreshed my spirit and your spirit, therefore acknowledge such men. Paul ends our passage by telling the Corinthians to acknowledge Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, as well as anyone like them. Acknowledge not these men, but such men. And Paul is calling them to recognize those who serve for what they are and what they have done. This is not so much talking about financial provision as it is an attitude, although the former will be a symptom of the latter. But simply put, we are not to take service in the church at any level for granted. We know from these very words and others that Paul is not one to forget or leave an act of service unrecognized. I call this the fellowship of sight because I think we have all experienced whether in our families, whether in the church, whether at the workplace, whether in society, where we are working hard and we feel unseen. We feel invisible. Moms, I know you've felt this way for years by your children, if not decades. We feel this way with our spouses. We feel this way from our bosses. Some of you feel this way from me. We need to see other people. We need to acknowledge them. We tend to shy away from praising others because we want to give all glory to God. Amen. That is good. But you have to understand that by virtue of the commands that we see about encouragement and recognizing and acknowledging part of giving glory to God is recognize those who, by His grace, are sacrificing and serving for the Lord. Far too often in the name of not wanting to puff up, we don't acknowledge others, all the while feeding our own pride because we can't get past our pride and lifting others up above ourselves. We're not talking about plaques and ribbons, but simple respect, simple appreciation. It's easy for me. It's easy for Lawrence. It's easy for the deacons who read the Scripture to you. But do you know who's behind the scenes? Is the table over here today just a relief because it's not in your way back there? Or do you recognize and appreciate Do you know the individual who handles all of our finances? Do you know who is that 
other individual who for months and years was databasing everything from visitors to giving to finances to expenses. Do you know who's doing it now that that person is on maternity leave? This is not about listing everyone in the bulletin. This is about fellowship. This is about helping. This is about serving. This is about just knowing who your spiritual family is. All over the New Testament, we are called to honor those who serve the Lord because this then in turn honors the Lord. Again, we all know the experience of feeling unseen, working hard and yet seemingly invisible to others. Some of us want to be invisible because the only time that we seem to be visible to our kids or our parents or our spouses or our co-workers or even our church friends is criticism, bashing. Hey, good job, but you know, you missed this and you missed that and this is crooked and the miss that, you know. I've said it before, it doesn't take any effort to criticize. It is our sin nature. It's just letting go and letting your sin take over. Now I know that some of you, especially that look more like me, were raised by parents that you say, no, 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 my mom took it to an art form, the criticism. She took a lot of effort to be that good. That aside you know that it's just giving in to your sin. You're not smarter than other people by recognizing that a slide was missed or that there's no slides at all. Everyone sees that. The question is, is what do you truly believe in your heart? Not how you spin it to make the other person feel good, but are you truly just thankful for what people do? Are you truly thankful for the little acts of service that go unseen, unnoticed all the time? You take that feeling that you had of feeling invisible. You think about just what simple words of recognition, not pride, not arrogance, just a simple word of thanks and recognition would have lifted your spirit at that very moment and perhaps would have stopped, nipped in the bud a a week or two weeks of frustration and anger. You take that feeling, those thoughts, and then do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the fellowship of sight. The worst is those of us who see and then don't say anything. You get this. We're talking about effective fellowship. When we do these things, of course, fellowship with the saved. But when we're serving one another, when we're being served, when we submit to one another and say, I don't like that, but okay, you know what's best. You've been talking to the group, whatever it may be. Then we support each other. We meet needs. We refresh and invigorate spiritually. We see people and we acknowledge them. You can see how much is missing from our fellowship and how powerful it would be if we did all these things. It's not much. This is who we're saved to be. 
you know this, a down day, feeling invisible mom, and, 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 and the worst kid you have just says, Mommy, I know you spend a lot of time cleaning every day. Thank you. And the rest of your day, you're floating on cloud nine. You know how powerful this stuff is. Service. You're carrying the burden of your whole team at work. And then one day, you find just one person on the team came in early and said, Hey, notice how much you do. So uh, I made sure to fill the coffee and I cleaned your desk and I already prepared all the paperwork that I know that is due at noon and all you have to do is sign. And you're invigorated. Not because you're like, oh, less work for me, woohoo, but because you are encouraged. Effective fellowship, this stuff, this stuff is so powerful. It's like dynamite. We just got to do it. We all need to do it. Six ingredients of effective fellowship, salvation, service, submission, support, strength, and sight. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of having fellowship with you, which drives all of this. Lord, if we tend to enjoy the company of the unredeemed more than the redeemed, help us to see why and change that. Help us to serve biblically and allow others to serve us. May we submit not just to the leaders of the church that we have to submit to, but each other, one another, trusting. Help us to support one another, to strengthen one another, not just by buying stuff, not just with platitudes, but with your word and truly being there for people, praying for people, sacrificing for people. And may we get over ourselves and see others, not just for what they lack, but for what they are and what they do, that we might encourage and acknowledge such men and women. Make us this type of church, Lord, who practice effective, biblical fellowship for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together as we close.